This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 127. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? Good. Decently. Better than I might have been doing had the Leafs lost again last night. Okay. <laughs> the Leafs lost again last night. This podcast would not have started with, uh, you know, hi, welcome to Back to Excited. It would, say, it would be, hi, the Leafs are fucking shit again. <laughs> um, yes. It would be the most profane eulogy of all time. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, we're certainly glad that we at least are recapping after a win. Uh, it's been a long time since we've been able to do that. Yeah. So, let's uh, maybe discuss the week that was briefly. The Leafs played three games. The first one was their opener against the Montreal Canadiens, which was a thrilling and or nerve-wracking battle that the Leafs won in overtime. Goal by Morgan Riley, 5-4. Uh, the Leafs were down 3-1 at one point, and then Wayne Simmons did some punching and beat up Ben Chirot, and then William Nylander went out and kind of carried the ball, and the Leafs charged back. You can make a case, and a lot of Habs fans did, that the Canadians were the better team on that night. That said, I think the case for the Canadians being the better team in every one of these games is always, well, we controlled play, we just didn't finish that well, and that's kind of their thing. Now, they did finish somewhat, you know, they had four goals off a less-than-stellar performance by Freddie Anderson, but I think you can say that first game the teams played to type, to some extent. Yes, which is a little bit of a problem for the Leafs because by playing to type, we mean they look very similar to the, how they did last year and the year before that and the year before mm-hmm. that. Yep. Um, but, okay, you know, for opening night, things happen. Montreal is a good team. Got a game against Ottawa coming up. Surely the Leafs will take care of business <laughs> beating a far superior, or beating a far, sorry, a far inferior Ottawa team that is playing, you know, a lot of guys who I frankly had never heard of throughout their... Uh, you know, throughout their forward lineup. Um, one of the Leafs ever, you know, failed to live up to the expectations of beating an inferior team. Never. It, it never It never happened. No, name even one time. And then Friday night. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, the Leafs lost, uh, as you can probably tell by our immensely sarcastic um, preamble to this game. I, I believe the score was 5-3. I kind yes. of blocked it out after um, after a little bit. That's I was recapping that healthy. game. Uh, and, and I'll say this, that was not a smash and grab by Ottawa. Mm. That was not a goalie stealing a win. That was not Freddie giving away a win. That was, we kind of got outplayed by Ottawa. Yes. Or at best, you can say it was an even game against Ottawa. Yes. If you want to be the most pessimistic you possibly can... And while we don't want to, we kind of instinctively do at times, or at least I do. Maybe the most disconcerting thing is that down a couple of goals against the Ottawa Senators in the third period, the Leafs, by any statistical measure, and also, I would say, a visual measure, kind of rolled over and died. In the third period, as per natural stat trick at 5-on-5, 
Ottawa had 91% of the expected goals in the third. That looks a lot like you just kind of said, okay, fuck it, this night's over. And while I don't think it was quite that blatant, it's still disconcerting to see this Leafs team seemingly crumple in the face of Ottawa. It's bad enough if you're a real contender to do it pretty much at any point. But second game of the season against the worst team in your division. And I still do believe that. That was not good. That was a disconcerting end to a sloppy game. Yes, it was It was bad. It was, you know, really, really, really bad. And I don't think it's really possible to overstate how bad it is. Um, and people will point to the fact that, hey, good teams lose to contend, or sorry, yeah, good teams lose to bad teams all the time, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm sure if we combed through Tampa last year, they had some listless performances. Here's the thing, Tampa's earned the benefit of the doubt. Right. They've been an elite team for five years. Even before last year, they destroyed um, the regular season the year prior. They had been to a cup finals. They'd been to conference finals year after year after year. Mm-hmm. The Leafs don't have that margin of error. They don't have that benefit of the doubt. Yes. Right? They, they, there's If the Leafs are... Or the reason to think that is like, oh, they're usually not like this. That's um, that's unusual. Oh, well, chalk it off. Yeah. It's this team might not actually be that good. If, you know, they, they haven't earned the right to get a game off. Exactly. Certainly not the second game of the season against a rival. Yeah. As, I mean, it is worth emphasizing that. On the one hand, yes. Uh, Ottawa won 35% of its games last year, and they were terrible. They were the second worst team in the NHL. But still, they beat better teams than them a decent percentage of the time. And similarly, the Leafs on the week, spoiler alert, won two games out of three. If they do that, they'll win the division without much trouble. But if you're looking for evidence that this team is better and that it has patched the holes that have plagued us for the previous years. I don't think you got a lot of evidence in these three games and you sure as hell didn't get it on Friday night, which probably made you think, why do I follow this franchise? That was very stupid. So I think we're trying to strike a balance here between saying, okay, it's three games. Anything can happen in three games, but three games are, you know, adding little bits of weight on one side of the scale or the other. One side is, the Leafs have improved, and the other side is they have not. And I think the net effect, certainly of this game, and maybe of this week, was to put more weight on the didn't improve side. But that probably can lead us to the Saturday game. Yeah, so in the Saturday game, the Leafs won. Probably nervier than it had to be. And I think there's a tendency to look at this and look at the shot totals and think, mm-hmm. okay, they did what they had to do. Right. Um, I can put up the stats real quick, but basically the Leafs dominated in terms of shots. And I'm being very particular when I say in shots. Um, yeah, we had 72% essentially of the unblocked shots, 65%, sorry, 72% of the total shots, 65% of the unblocked shots. And, you know, if you do that, it seems like you're going to win more often than not. There's a bit of an issue in that by natural stat trick at 5 on 5, the Leafs only have 58% of the expected goals. Now, normally that's nothing really to sniff at. But you, you've noticed a pattern as we've get, gotten to like higher levels of danger. Un, um, all shots, Leafs were dominant. Unblocked shots, less dominant, but still very much so. 
expected goal, so we're accounting for quality now, it's closer still. And in fact, um, other sites like Evolving Hockey actually have the Senators ahead of the Leafs in terms of overall XG in that game, and even 5-on-5 XG. Mm-hmm. So there's there's score effects there, and you know I'm not going to make a case that the Senators outplayed the Leafs, but what I would want to point out is that it was perhaps not as much of a runaway as it may have seen when you actually look at the chances, because the Leafs, for all their territorial dominance, really struggled to get inside slot. And they really, really struggled to do that when Matthews and his line was not on the ice. Yes, and if you, again, are looking for things to be sad about, and I apologize if you're not, I promise we'll try and find some optimism throughout this episode, but you would say, what bedeviled the Leafs against the Columbus Blue Jackets and probably finished them in the end, uh, was that they did not really get to the high-danger areas of the ice at an expected rate against a lesser opponent, but one that played solid defense. Now, that said, look, if you're winning by the margin in expected goals that Natural Statric thinks they were anyway, that's kind of fine. But it is telling that they were getting a lot of shots from not great locations, possibly not always from the greatest shooters, either, and that they weren't really capitalizing on possession as much. And even on Friday, I think the Leafs were the better team through the first 25 or so minutes of that game. I don't think that they were that impressive because they mostly seemed to be playing ring around the rosy in the offensive zone. They would get into the offensive zone. They would make passes around the outside. But they wouldn't really penetrate to the high danger areas of the ice. And someone's got to do that at some point. Because otherwise, you're peppering the goalie with a lot of low percentage shots, and you'll still win to some extent doing that. It's still better than not to have the puck in the opposing zone, but you won't be nearly as good as your shot total makes you look. And again, this is Ottawa. Ottawa is the guppy of the division. Yeah, very much so. So if I was to you know, express a pattern of the first three games, it's it's been a bit of a... There's two things that I would I would compare it to, and neither of them are particularly heartening if you're a Leafs fan. The first is the Leafs of last year, at the start of the season, mm. under Mike Babcock. Their shot numbers, and by that I mean Corsi, was good. They were carrying play. They they got a lot more chances, or a lot more sorry, a lot more shots than the other team. But those shots were were not from good areas. Right? They struggled to get into the prime areas of the ice and. Prior to that season, that was the calling card of this era of Leafs. Like, for all their faults, and there were many, you could not deny that they were one of the very best offensive teams in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and, and, you know, we're so negative about the Leafs at times because of the expectations that we have for this team. But it, it's worth remembering, like, the reason we have those expectations is in part because we have some superlative talents who really are among the best offensive players in the world. We should expect to be an elite offensive team. Um, through three games this year, it hasn't really been borne out at all. The second thing I would compare it to is a caricature of what Sheldon Keefe's system is. And again, that's not positive, right? It's it, it's been all the things that people would criticize about the system. It, it's it's tepid. It's a lot of the puck being cycled around the boards. There's you know people in front, but the puck's not really getting there. When it does get there, it's like a hopeful point shot. It, it, we're not really breaking down the structure of the opposing team. 
unless we manage to generate turnovers in uh, the offensive zone, the opponent's defensive zone, as they try and leave. And I would say, you know, the one line that has been actually good at generating offense, the Matthews line, most of their success and a lot of their high-value chances have been off the fact that they're great at puck recovery in the offensive zone. So, like, you know, they'll, they'll lose the puck because everyone loses the puck at some point in the offensive zone. The opposing team will try and get out, and then they'll get stripped. And, you know, it's it's like counter-pressing in soccer. That creates great chance. Mm-hmm. That's where their offense is coming from to my eye right now. It's not through consistent breaking of the pressure of the structure of the opposing defense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, counter-pressing is, is a valid way to try and generate offense. That's what Columbus does, right? But at a certain point, a team's going to execute well enough that you can't rely on them barfing it up in their own zone. Yeah. So you, you'd like to have some ability to break down their structure as well, and I haven't yet seen that from this year's Leafs. Yes, I think that that would be the takeaway there. Now, I guess the starting point maybe is Joe Thornton being on that top line. We've said Matthews and Marner are the line that is working the best. I think that that's pretty clear. That's borne out on the stats, the eyes, whatever, what have you. And Joe Thornton did have a goal last night. It was nice. And I think he was more effective last night than he had been. But at the same time, I am not convinced that this is really the best alignment for our lines. I know Matthews and Martyr have been doing more puck battling, more puck retrieval, as you've said, you know, and they're both great takeaway players and they always have been. But I still find myself thinking, is this really the best option to put at first line left wing? And when the chips get down, as they often did in the first three games, it would seem that Sheldon Keefe kind of agrees. Because Zach Hyman ends up getting uh, the call to go back and replace Thornton on the first line the way that we had in the past. And at some point, you know, if, if we're just doing this for the sake of ego massage to be blunt or just because we think that there's some cycle value having joe thornton there i think it's still pretty telling that when push comes to shove zach hyman is the guy who goes on that line and it works better yeah i i agree with you in the sense that i don't think thornton is the best fit on that line at the same time that line has generally been good Mm -hmm. um they weren't fantastic in Friday's loss, but you know, very few people were. That line's generally been good, and Matthews and Marner have, I think, been very strong at five on five. Um, to my eye, it really does seem like Thornton is just kind of along for the ride. But that's also kind of how it's always been with Thornton, even when he was, you know, one of the league's very best players. He he's always a guy that gets you know, unless he makes that great pass or on a rare occasion, scores that goal. He just kind of floats along as a puppeteer, almost, right? Just controlling mm. it. He doesn't. He does that less now, but I don't know if... I My my eyes are telling me to kind of credit essentially all of that line success to Matthews and Martin right now. Mm. I don't know if that's necessarily fair. Um, and given that the results are, are good at this point, again, it's three games, but, you know, Matthews and Martin and the line as a whole have been working for the most part. I'm tentatively okay with that for now. It's it's something I would change if I was the coach, 
but it's not like an imminent thing. I, it's just one of the things I, I lump into things I will disagree about the coach with, which are, is always going to be a non-zero set. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, certainly a fair way to look at it. And, you know, as much as I don't necessarily like it, it's true, yeah. I mean, the numbers are good. The line is working. And, you know, last night they struck for a very nice goal. They got on the score sheet. I was not really worried about Matthews not scoring the first two games because as soon as you watched him, he was probably the most dangerous leaf on the ice for that period. So it was one of those questions of it will come. It's just a matter of when. And so, yeah, I, I guess you can say, look, if you have complaints, Joe Thornton is not really the big one here. He's still, I mean, he's still clearly an NHL player. Limitations at all. He's still got certain skills that really do stand out once in a while, even if most of the time, as you say, he's not visibly the big driver on that line. And you can say he doesn't have to be. Any construction with a line with Matthews and Marner, the other guy is going to be third place. So I guess it's maybe time to move on to the Tavares line. We talked about this. Um, Tavares and Nylander have both had some really great moments at not even strength. Yeah, or not five on five. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nylander was kind of, I would say, the man of the match on the first in the first game against the Canadians. I think he was terrific. He had three points. He was buzzing, making great plays. That was also their best game at even strength, I think, considering the competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, it, you know, Montreal is not a pushover. And, I think you know, we've made fun of them for lack of top-end-ish talent. In parentheses, I really hope they don't get Pierre-Luc Dubois. But, um, you know, they are a good team. They're a solid team, and they're a team that controls play. So, if you have a strong game against the Montreal Canadiens, statistically... That counts. They're real competition. Um, and, and so I think that that was impressive. They stood out less against Ottawa. Right, and that is a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the Leafs' success depends on the fact that... depends on the idea that we have two first lines that are going to produce offense at elite level. Mm-hmm. You will not be able to stop both of them. Right, the, the the depth on this team, it's been functional. We can talk about the Kerfoot line as well, who have been kind of what we expected in some ways. Um, but, you know, there, there's no sign that anyone on the fourth line is really going to provide consistent offense. Right. So, you know, we're a two-line offensive team. The, the third and fourth lines are there effectively to pass time, which is a limitation of the roster. And it's a direct consequence of paying four guys that much money yeah. right like you have to make sacrifices elsewhere and for that for that financial decision to be worth it those four guys have to bring it five on five every single game they have to be the meal ticket mm-hmm. Nylander and Tavares have not been uh through these first three games and worryingly their offensive generation has been very poor and yes. I'll, I'll specify that further. Their ability to get in close has been really poor. Um, they're averaging... So, John Tavares on ice, just using him as a proxy for his line for the moment. Averaging a, a higher shot rate than last year. Uh, averaging about the same in terms of unblocked shots. And th- these are on ice numbers, so his line when he's on the ice. 
his expected goal rate, expected goals for rate, this year compared to last year, it's down by, like, 40-50%. That's not great. And I know some people are going to say, on a basic level, hey, John Tavares is tied for the league leading points. He has five of them. And that's true, but what we're trying to look at here is, is that line going to go out and kick ass and win its minutes? Yeah, I, I overstated that. It, it, it's only down 33%, so rest easy. <laughs> Problem solved. It's just, if that line's not taking it to competition, and again, two of these games were against freaking Ottawa. I'm sorry, but like Ottawa should not have any line that competes remotely with a line with Tavares and Nylander on it. It just should not, even as much as we've grudgingly admired, say, Brady Kachuk. They do not have the horses. So, you know, it's great that they're both putting up points. Um, and, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm glad they are because it's shielding them from a mainstream media criticism that would otherwise be firing right now, quite rightfully. Yeah. And, you know, I will say visually... I've always felt like Tavares is giving it his all, and I thought that he, I mean, he kind of had that that late effort that didn't do much, but at least it eased the embarrassment slightly of the Friday game. <laughs> you know, I think that he's always brought it in, in a visual sense. I, I see him going out there and playing good hockey on a consistent basis, but the fact that this line is not dominant, it's like, well, that's kind of what we're for. And if we don't have that... That doesn't bode super well. So, yeah. Uh, this third line. Um, sure, I, I just want to yeah, mention one more thing about that. Like, Tavares is getting older. He's probably not as good now as he was two years ago. Mm. I, perhaps this is, you know, wishful thinking. I, I hope, or I think that this come down that we've seen early on is not reflective of anything greater. And I don't think it is, in part because, you know, it was it was not that long ago. It was eight months ago. And even at times in the in the in the bubble in the series against um uh Columbus, this line still showed something. This pairing still showed something at times. Uh, not that often, but it wasn't that long ago that Nylander and Tavares combined absolutely brilliantly. I don't think I don't see a strong enough reason why that should have changed over the past year. I don't think Tavares has fallen off a cliff. No. Now, the obvious thing to point at is, is Jimmy VC on that line. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's... I think that's a little unfair in the sense that... Look, VC's not great. He's not a second liner by, by merit. He, we're playing him there with the idea of like, okay, you are a guy and hopefully, you know, as we said on the, our preview podcast, Nylander Tavares' guy should work. That's why we're paying those two $18 million. And his numbers are fine. Yeah, and v- VC's numbers generally are fine. And historically, like he, sh- he is not he's not my first choice to be the third banana on a line, but he's not going to embarrass himself there. If, if that line isn't better, I think it falls more on Nylander and Tavares than on VC. Right? Because mm-hmm. at some point you have to look at the people who are actually important on your roster. Yeah. You know, it's, we do get into the weeds, and I think a lot of Leafs analysis, for people who are kind of very passionate and nerdy and a little obsessive, is to get down into the weeds and focus on, oh, is this uh, fourth-line winger really pulling his weight? And, you know, sometimes it's like, no, you got to look at what is the core doing? 
it is the big answer staring you in the face, even if it's obvious. And uh, again, I've liked a lot about Tavares and Elander's games. It's just it is worrying to see that they're not going out and taking it to the opposition. And yeah, if it, we it, don't see that show up soon, that's a problem. Yeah, and it seems like they're like just one move or one pass away a lot of the time, and they're just not mm-hmm. getting it. Um, yeah. So yeah, like that that needs that needs to be fixed. They're in a really really important part of the team. Um, and to the extent that we would advocate breaking up the third line that we'll discuss shortly and moving Zach Hyman, I would move him to the second line because the first line has been fine on their own with Thornton there. Again, not what I would do, but it's it's working well enough. It, right. The Tavares and, and Nylander seem to need that chemistry or that um, complementary skill that Hyman provides over BC. So if we were going to do that, that if we were going to you know shift up the lines, that's what I would do right now. Yeah, and I think that there's a decent argument for it. The um, the Kerfoot line is just not generating very much. Surprise, surprise, right? But yeah, I I I did a a post game kind of just random kind of grab bag type of thing in the wake of the Montreal game, and I described that line as um three satellites looking for something to orbit around. Mm-hmm. They're they're all just complementary offensive players, right? Like. And, of course, you know, you're not going to have an elite offensive player on your third line, generally speaking. No. Um, but there, there's just very little... Just even as styles, they don't really mesh together that well. You have kind of a shoot-first gunner who excels off the rush in Mikheyev. You have a grinder in Hyman who is a board battle and net front guy. And then you have a kind of perimeter passer in Kerfoot. And it's like, yeah. okay, there's, there's no one there to do a whole lot when you actually get into the offensive zone. Now, no, maybe, the, yeah. maybe that's the point. This um, group, like basically all the others on the Leafs, are, are getting the better of the shot battle against their opponents. But what I found is they'll have these shifts where they manage to get into the offensive zone, and to their credit, the one thing they can do, they can cycle. Mm-hmm. But they just have no ability to turn that cycle into anything. Like, when I say they can cycle, I mean they can pass the puck around the perimeter of the offensive zone and chew up 45 seconds. Right. And then that's it. There, there, there's no way to turn that into a shot besides getting it back to the defense, you know, firing it on net and hoping it bounces for Zach Hyman. Yeah. That, that's the offensive plan of this group. And, and, like, every once in a while it'll go in. It yeah, went I in mean, for Kerfoot. We saw it with Kerfoot, yeah. Yeah. But... The thing is, is that you do need your third line to score sometimes. And and not just off Kerfoot point shot. Yeah, like it probably needs to come from something that has a slightly better chance of success. Um, now that said, you can say, look, we knew we were moving to a top six, bottom six structure. We got four really, really good forwards. We got to sort them out. We got to make sure that they're controlling play and scoring to a huge extent. But maybe a third line grind line that does well on the shot clock and kind of grinds it out is worth doing. And it's early yet to say, I I guess, that they can't. Because I'm thinking, okay, if they can slow it down enough and this line by hook or by crook outscores its opposition, I'm willing to have some patience with it. But they do need to do something. And the offensive limitations of this line are going to put so much pressure on it defensively 
because they're just not going to score very much. And, you know, in XG, for example, right now, Kerfoot is way underwater. It's at 42%, something like that. Yeah, I mean, it depends where you look, but none of them are good. And so it's a question of, okay, is that going to get better? Is he somehow going to avoid that kind of telling against him by ability to control shooting percentage? I don't think so. We know better than to count on that defensively. So if you kind of want to look at the warning lights on this one, you're thinking this line is on a track to be getting outscored potentially by a decent amount unless they can find more to do with their cycle. Because again, you could have these very sustained possessions. And, and again, the Leafs did this to Ottawa for long stretches, even in both games where they just didn't turn it into very much and not many real goals resulted. And as a result, the line was not that effective, even though they looked a bit like the classic LA Kings cup teams, you know, running it around the outside until the cows come home. Yeah. The other thing, so I'll add a couple points Mm -hmm. to me. If they're low event enough, you can excuse some level of lack of offense, right? Because it's kind of the Columbus theory. You know, this line doesn't have to uh, win their matchup, but they just have to not lose by much, Mm -hmm. right? And being low event is one way to do that. So that's one possible avenue to success. Now, again, that relies on, hey, our other top two lines, they got to be rolling in that case because the fourth line sure as hell isn't doing shit. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, it really does come down to that second line at this point to me. Like, that, that is far and away the Leafs' biggest issue right now in my head. It, it, it's how do we get John Tavares and Moe Nander going at 5-on-5. Five five. Yes. And, uh, I th- you know, I think that it will work in a given way. And again, they're great special teams players. I think, you know, our power play will be fine. It has produced, even if they're doing some some things that are a bit loopy, because there's almost too much talent. And whenever push comes to shove, they're like, okay, no more kidding around. Let's just put out the best players, and then they score. So, (laughs) I don't know. But, yeah. The fourth line is interesting, because I said something last podcast about how that line had a lot of apparently offensive-minded players, or at least players that used to be in Spezza, Simmons. And I said, maybe they'll be used more offensively. And the complete opposite has happened. So every now and then, it's just like, I do not predict what Keefe was thinking with that one. He used Spezza pretty much only for defensive draws last night. He also barely uses his fourth line at all, it yeah. seems like. This is another thing worth pointing out. We are riding the shit out of Matthews and Marner right now. Yes, in the first three games. And all of the games have been competitive. Like, the Leafs didn't run away with any of them early, so it's not like he's had a huge chance to rest his players. But the fact remains, you have to wonder about riding them that extensively. Now, maybe you say, hey, it's a 56-game season and they're young. Maybe it'll be okay. But... I don't know about this, and I especially don't know about having a fourth line that you basically don't use. You know, Barabanov has been playing five, six minutes a night. Now, Nick Robertson came in and then unfortunately took uh, an injury, which took him right out of the game. So in that sense, it wasn't really an option. But 
yeah, it, it looks like this line gets used for defensive zone draws, and then maybe Spezza and Simmons get to pop up for an offensive opportunity. Whoever they're with almost doesn't matter. Like, this lineup could very easily shift to an 11-7 structure based on the forwards, because they barely use the 12 forward at all anyway. So, yeah, anyway, I don't know how well it's going to work with the fourth line getting absolute grunt work for players who are maybe not the, the best suited for it. They've gotten killed in terms of chances, as you would expect. Yeah. Um, um, it's been pretty bad, but... The whatever. other thing, just going back to the time on ice, there, there's a mm-hmm. gulf between Matthew's line and everyone else. Matthew's mm-hmm. has nine more five-on-five five minutes so far than Tavares. And Matthew's plays both special teams, at least in part. Tavares only plays power play. Um, there's then a seven-minute gap between Tavares and Kerfoot, which I actually thought would be a little bit smaller because there were some games where um, it seemed like, at least through the first two periods, Kerfoot and Tavares basically had the exact same time on ice. And then as the Leafs kind of shifted into, okay, chips are down, well, they started playing Tavares and his line a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like we're, we're, we're kind of justifiably riding Matthews. He's our best player. We think he can be an MVP candidate. Mm-hmm. You know, you should ride him. Um and as we've said, it's not as if Tavares and Nylander are playing particularly well at 5-on-5, five five, but the degree to which we are riding Matthews, as opposed to riding, you know, the other guys we are spending $18 million on, in addition to that, is a little bit curious to me. And mm. I don't know if it's because they're not playing as well, or if it's just, you know, Keith is saying, okay, this is your team, you're playing a shit ton of minutes, and Tavares, you're essentially playing a standard 2C role. Right. Yeah, it's, um... All of this stuff makes me a little uneasy, is I guess how I would point at these trends. You know, like, I I worry about the good things being sustainable, I worry about the bad things not being fixed, and maybe that's just temperamental. And again, after all, the Leafs won two out of three, but... This does not look to me like a roster that is clipping at an especially high capacity. It doesn't look to me like it's doing that well. No, it Um, it, it does Like, there's... um... I'll, I'll mention this before we really talk about uh, the defenseman as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yesterday evening, and after the game, I put out a, a Twitter poll that just said, a very simple question. After three games, the evidence suggests the Leafs are better than last season, worse than last season, about the same. Or just show me the results. Um, and the majority of people said about the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that's fair. That's what I would put it at as well. I'd say about the same. Um, mm-hmm. Which is a bit of a problem. In the sense that we weren't that good last year. No, we weren't good enough. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, as much as I mean, speaks for itself. That's the I thing. Guess. Now we, yeah, we, we talked in you know in the off season. We said we thought the team was a little bit better, and I think if you want to be generous answering the poll, you should say your prior on what happened in the off season should still greatly outweigh any three games. Yes, and that's true, and it still does for me. I still think this team is better. But it would be nice for them to start showing it. As I was saying, three games is not a big sample. It doesn't tip the scales one way or the other. It just adds a little bit of weight on one side. For the most part, again, I think this weight is going on the not better side of it. On the side that's going to make you more pessimistic about these this team's chances. I still think that I would favor them to win the division. Like, no one else in Canada has been all that impressive. Uh, the Habs, kind of. The Habs, kind of, but also I think that 
the Habs limitations do show up. Now, if they do trade for Pierre-Luc Dubois, and this has just been rumored because Dubois has explicitly said that he wants to be traded. He is also a Francophone first-line center, so he would be an extremely obvious fit for Montreal. If they get him, I am scared. Especially if they don't have to give up a significant player off their current roster to do it. And, but as and it stands, Kokanyemi is not a significant player, to be clear. No, to be clear. Like, honestly, I think their approach should be, we're going to keep Nick Suzuki no matter what, because we want to have a one-two center punch uh, to build a run for the future. But pretty much everything else is on the table. Yeah, I think they want to keep Romanov as well. And, I mean, okay, so... the. Uh... The stuff about Romanov has been interesting because he had, I think, a pretty good game against the Leafs. I don't, I didn't yeah. see how he did yesterday when the um, Habs beat the Oilers, but they beat them pretty bad, so I assume he did fairly well. Um, but like, I saw at least like three or four articles about like, you know, Alexander's Roman, Alexander Romanov's debut is unprecedented. Just you know, great upside. It's like, okay, guys, it was one game. Like, like chill. I, like, he's a good prospect, right? And yeah. I'm not an expert on prospects, but I, I. I thought he had a good game. I didn't think, it's like, oh shit, this guy's Bobby Orr. I will say this. The Leafs get ragged on for overhyping their prospects all to hell. And probably on a volume basis, we're still the worst because there are so many of us. But I swear to God, on a per capita basis, the Habs are worse than we are. Because everyone who seems to pass through Montreal gets a halo over them. It's nuts. There was tweets yesterday about like, man, Nick Suzuki looks like a young Patrice Bergeron. And people were like, more offensive upside, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if Bergeron had 70 Ber- points when he was 20 years old. I, like, you realize, like, Bergeron's a Hall of Fame player, right, guys? <laughs> like, yeah, it's like a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, it's not going to be a question. He's one of the greatest <laughs> defensive centers in the history of the sport. It's like, I think Nick Suzuki is actually really cool and impressive. I liked him going into that draft. I've liked him since. I think he's going to be a first-line player. But, like, I think it's an open question whether Nick Suzuki turns out to be as good as William Nylander, for example. Yeah. No, that, like, it I, could go either way. That, that's like, kind of where I come down on. And, I, yeah, yeah, like I said, I like Suzuki a lot. It's also good to see someone who, like, a, a person of color succeed in hockey at the highest level. Right. Right? Yeah, like, um, like, this is not a knock on him. It's just, like, you don't need to go crazy about it. Yeah. He's, he's very good. Yeah. Yeah. But um, he's not Patrice Bergeron. Anyways, okay, sorry. We, we, we got tired of shitting on the Leafs. We had to shit on the Habs for a bit. Yes, I know. I actually, you know what? I feel a little rejuvenated. <laughs> like, I've, I've got the power back now to go in and it's like It's of- like when Superman flies to space so he can be repowered by the sun. <laughs> That's us and making fun of the Montreal Canadiens. So, yeah. Um, anyway, on the defensive side, I there are some ups and downs. Yeah, Brody had a brutal game on Friday, but... Other yeah. than that, like, I mean, okay, other, other than one-third of the games he's played. Um, but <laughs> in in Montreal in the second game against Ottawa, he was good. Um, yeah, and I'm like... there yeah. that makes me too terrified about him. The top-line numbers aren't great, I don't think. Um, mm. But regardless, I, I visually watching him, I'm not really concerned as of yet. Yeah, I think the reality is anyone can have a really bad game. And especially as a defenseman, at some point during the year... Everything is going to go wrong and explode on you. Everything you touch will end up in the back of your own net and you will get turnstiled and it will be excruciating and bad. And that's not fun, but like that has happened to 
better defenseman than TJ Brody. And so the fact that he had one just absolute no good, very bad burn the tape day doesn't really bother me too much, especially in light of the fact that in the other two games, he was fine to, I thought, actually quite good. Quiet, but that's what we want from him. So, yeah, uh, I am checking the not worried box about TJ Brody in contrast to some of the stuff I said about the forwards. And Muzz and Hall are just doing fine, seems like. Yeah, I thought yeah. I thought they were, I thought Muzzin was a little shaky against uh, Montreal, but was good against Ottawa. Um, again, not worried about them, right? Like, it, yeah, it, it, it's weird. We're, we're more worried about the forwards than the defense, I guess, in part because we have higher expectations of the forwards. Like, my worry with the forwards, as we've covered, is you know we need JT and Nylander to drive a line really well. That's how we win. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they haven't done that yet. Whereas we need the defense to be confident. Yes, and they have mostly delivered on that. I mean, Morgan Riley had... He, he got absolutely walked by Nick Suzuki. Yeah, it, it, Riley is... That was, he, he's not good defensively. I've, I've uh, you know... We've done that so many times. Yeah, we yeah, appreciate I, what he is, what not what he isn't. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, it, it's still... The Leafs are still not very good defensively, it doesn't seem. Um, no. But they... I think I think their top line numbers might actually be like not bad on defense so far. I don't recall, but because again we played two games against Ottawa, and mm-hmm. we spent so much time in the offensive zone, especially yesterday, that it's its own form of shot suppression. Yeah, and to be clear, that's the kind of defense that the Leafs should probably play the best. Is just they can't get a good chance on you if the puck is never in your own zone, uh, and it's worth noting. Uh, Hall has the best expected goal numbers on the team. Muzzin is not far behind. I do think that, and I want to be clear that this is a very qualified defense of Justin Hall, because I don't think that he's like a legit number three defenseman or anything like that. I think he's like a four or five guy. He can kind of pop up to your second pairing if he's the second best guy on it and drop down to the third pairing otherwise. But... Everyone just kind of says, like, why are we so committed to Muzzin and Hall? And I'm like, well, we don't need to to be married to that concept. By all means, try other things. But you realize Hall and Muzzin together had terrific stats, especially defensively, playing hard minutes all through last year. They were a legit NHL shutdown pairing that worked, like, quite well. And I think with the Leafs defense group, we're so used to kind of saying, okay, that was pretty good for Toronto, so still not very good defensively, and usually that's the right approach because our team has never been good defensively. But those two actually worked at a pretty impressive level. Again, that doesn't mean that it's mostly Justin Hall's doing. It's obviously Jake Muzzin, who's a very good defensive defenseman. But that pairing has worked better defensively than pretty much any serious minutes pairing I can name in the last three years. And that's not just my eye test it's statistically borne out they had the best expected goals against of any pairing that wasn't obviously a third pair yeah so yeah anyway i just wanted to do an aside there to be like hey this thing is kind of cool and so i'm not that eager to like throw travis Zerman in you can can see what you have in him by all means i'm just saying that in in a season where we obviously want to prioritize winning games there's an argument for leaving muzzin and hall alone because they're good I hope this take makes me makes me look really stupid in like six months. I, I'm over Travis Dermott. Yeah, just not doing it anymore. Just, 
look, in his defense, he's playing with Zach Bogosian, who mm-hmm. is, um, he's not good in the best of times, and I don't think he's been at his best in these last three games. Oh, so he's um, oof. Yeah, he. he I gotta he, tell you, he's he, not phenomenal, <laughs> to say the least. No. Again, yeah. we don't want to overcentralize on the sixth defenseman. He he's not the difference between the Leafs, you know, having a better performance against Ottawa. No. In, in, on Friday, right? Like it's God. He made Montreal harder, though. Yeah, that, he, <laughs> but yeah, he did. go on. Yeah, but sorry. yeah, overall, that's not the, the the greatest concern that I have with Dermot. It's just we used to say, okay, this guy can rock it and shelter the repairing minutes, and he's mostly getting that now, and he's not really rocking it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I do want to see him. Well, I don't even know if I want to say I want to see him with a better partner because I've seen him with a better partner and it's fine. But I think that Travis Dermott has some very clear skills. And I think that he is a respectable NHL defenseman. I don't see what everyone else sees other than he's kind of agile and young and keeps tight gaps. And like, those are good things. Don't get me wrong. Um if I were in Seattle's position, it's possible that he would be the guy I was circling to claim from Toronto. And that can be a totally rational choice. I don't know. But I see a lot of people saying that he's clearly a second pairing guy ready to rock. And I, I don't know if I see that yet. Yeah. So I certainly I, don't know if I see it on the, uh, on the right side. I should be clear that like my take on Dermot right now, it, it's not really informed by the stats at all. I think in three games, it's very hard to look at top-line numbers and yeah. have them mean a whole lot, right? We, we, we mentioned them with Taveras a little bit, but that, you know, that's a, it was an observation that was really informed by the eye test and then kind of backed up by, you know, the, what we've seen on the ice in the first three games. With Dermot, I just don't think he's looked nice. He's made some really unforced errors that resulted in great chances against. I remember there was this situation where, um, I think it was on Friday night where, he ha- he just iced the puck for no reason. Like he ha- he just stopped four feet short of center and and dumped the puck in. Right, it's a simple unforced error, and then it led to like a, either a great shot against or a goal actually on the ensuing icing shift. Mm-hmm. And it's like you know I I know those things happen to everyone, right? right. They, they absolutely do. But things like that, like you're trying to make a case for being played higher up in the lineup, stuff like that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. I, I just haven't I haven't seen enough from him to be to, to to think that he's anything more than just this third pairing guy who's which is fine that you'll he'll have a long successful NHL career as a third pairing guy at bare minimum I have no doubt about that mm-hmm. he, he's not going to wash out of the league um but there's yeah there's nothing there that makes me want to play him on the right side over Justin Hall. And, and yeah. that, if you're Travis Dermott, that's a bit of a problem, right? Like, you should be looking at that and thinking, why is Hall playing there instead of me? I should make a case to be put on that side and play top four minutes. And I don't yeah. think he's really made that case. So it's like, it's just, I don't I don't think, the train is, is you know, it's starting to leave the station. Right. And I know that some people say, okay, he's not getting a fair chance. He's being stuck with Zach Bogosian. He is being played on the third pair. There's a second pairing that seems to have the affection of the coach, in parentheses, for clear reasons, as mentioned before. And that's all true. And I think for players down the lineup, especially, 
you you often don't get the ideal opportunity, and it's very possible that if he got an ideal situation, it would look better. But the thing is, hockey is unforgiving in the sense that when you are uh, a guy at the borders of a particular category, whether it's being a fringe NHLer or being a third-pair kind of tweener guy, sometimes you have to be so good that you make the best of a not-great situation. And Travis Dermott did that at one point, absolutely killing third pair minutes. And he was up and down last year. He had some good moments while there were, while the Leafs were kind of troubled by injuries. And I assume as injuries take their toll, because no team is going to be 100% healthy on defense, he will get more minutes again. It's just, again, you don't have to throw away anything you already thought about Travis Dermott. If you thought he was the guy, then by all means you know, you wouldn't revise that over uh, three games or anything like that. But you can look at that and you can think, okay, there's no evidence that's building up on the I have to promote him side of the ledger lately. I Like, I just haven't seen anything that means I have to throw Justin Hall back down to the third pair in a season where I'm trying to win a lot of games. So, yeah, that's uh, something to, to go. Zach Bogosian has been awful. I actually, I don't know. I, I saw some people saying against Montreal, they were like, okay, he took two penalties. But other than that, he had a decent quiet game. And I was like, I think the rest of the time he looked like dog shit. It was terrible. Maybe that's unfair. But And well, also, if, if, you're, if you're a depth guy and you take, you know, you're, you're, how, much, how many minutes does Bogosian play on a night-to-night basis, right? Yeah. I can, I can just look. Yeah, I can look up against Ottawa to have some number here. But against uh, Ottawa last game, he played 14 minutes, right? Yeah. Well, four. You can say okay, he cost us four minutes of you know PK time, right? Like you're not going to outweigh that in just 14 minutes of play mm-hmm. if you're a third pairing defenseman, right? Like it's those two penalties are hugely detrimental. Yeah, and in fairness. Bogosian is not normally that bad in terms of penalties. Obviously, if he did, he would be unplayable. He's not taking two minors a night. It was just frustrating because they were both pretty apparent and his own lack of mobility factored into both of them. Like one of them, he turned the puck over and took a penalty to try to get it back. And the other one, he took his hand off and he grabbed a guy with the jersey on a rush. And he has zero mobility. Like I... To make a qualified defense of Cody Ceci, I think Cody Ceci without the puck is a perfectly fine third-pair defensive defenseman. He is very bad with the puck, and it's horrifying, but without it, he can sort of be fine. I was, like, almost pleasantly surprised by him last year in that respect. Zach Bogosian, I'm I'm genuinely like, I don't think at 5v5 this guy can play, or, like, he's close to being non-NHL caliber in my eyes. I really do not like him. <laughs> yeah. Um, while we're here, actually, we should mention that because of the Robertson injury, uh, I-, I was actually curious about how it's going to work because, as Katya has mentioned, the Leafs are in this situation where any minor injury kind of requires LTIR, especially while Dell is still up because they don't have the cap space to bring anyone else up. Right? And they'd have to waive Dell um, in order to to do that otherwise, and that has the risk that Dubas doesn't appear to want to take of Dell being claimed, and it, it, 
you know, in Dubas' defense, it seems like he would actually be claimed at this point. There are a lot of teams kind of hunting for, for goalies, and there's been rumors that Edmonton in particular would want to waive him, or claim him, rather. Mm-hmm. But according to Chris Johnston, he said the Leafs can use the roster emergency exemption to recall Nick Robertson's injury replacement for tomorrow's game against Winnipeg because of an MOU, I believe that's memorandum of understanding, change for the season. Each of their taxi squad options fits under the salary criteria, Boyd, Brooks, Barabanov, Sandin, or Lettinen. So, a couple options, we could just bring up Barabanov, continue playing him four minutes, or perhaps they take this opportunity to go 11-7 with Sandin, or, or more likely Miko Lettinen. Yeah, and, you know, I've liked what I've seen of Barabanov in like zero minutes of play, but... It's so little, <laughs> like it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, the fourth line has been um, hard to judge because um, they yeah. get so little time. Their, their numbers are ghastly, as you mentioned. But again, it, it, they played probably like twenty minutes five on five total. Yeah, no, that's um, that's literally true. At five on five, Spezza has just under sixteen minutes, and Simmons has just over twenty. Simmons jumps up and plays the odd spare shift on a on a top nine winger role more often, but. Yeah, it's sort of, it's fine. I know Sheldon Keefe, you know, he did this last year. He didn't play his fourth line very much. And I I guess it's fine. You can say, like, look, your fourth line are your weakest players. This is a top-heavy team. Come on, it's fine. I do worry at some point about rest. Like, a lot of the benefit that Sheldon Keefe seemed to impose was just he played his best players more often. And they the team was better as a result, as you would expect. And then the team, and I'm explicitly not saying one way or the other whether there was any connection here. I'm just observing the team then got hit with injuries, so we kind of, it got things got scrambled, team results declined. It's just, is there some sort of payback down the line for doing this in greater injury risk or just greater fatigue, wear and tear, that the team is not going to be at its best later in the season? I don't know. I don't know what the optimal amount is to play these players at this time. The Leafs have a sports science department who is hopefully advising them on this. But it does feel a little pointless to have a fourth line that you basically use as a face-off get-off line. Or not much more. Yeah. On on the rest thing, mm-hmm. I'd say my concern is more that we don't have that lever of, okay, you know, we can just increase the Stars minutes and we'll be better. Like, the, we we yeah. talked about, okay, the Leafs kind of look the same as last year on net, you know, not much of a change. It's like, okay, well, how do we fix that? Well, increasing Stars minutes is off the table. We can't increase Matthews minutes more. Maybe we can play Tavares the same way. That's mm-hmm. it. But it, it's, it's, there's no simple fix, right? And, and actually, this is, this is what I want to get into. Um, we've talked a bit, you know, before the season, and there's been talk throughout these first three games of like, okay, the Leafs are making some weird decisions coaching-wise, which I agree with. They're making some odd decisions. I wouldn't have Thornton where he is. I probably wouldn't have VC where he is now. Um, neither of those are like egregious, but you know, it, it's it's a little odd. Um, it seems that whenever the chips are down, we we promote that Kaiman to play with two stars. Yeah. Um, because that's what he's very good at. Mm-hmm. And it begs the question: Okay, why are we not doing this regularly? Um. And it's not to say that there's no valid answer for that, but it's it's a valid question. Uh, the power plays, I think, even more the, even more of the case where where we have this two split uh, power play units, and then whenever there's a high leverage power play, we roll out our five best players. And it's like, yeah. okay, 
is this telling you something? You know, why are we doing this? Why are we waiting till our win probability is in the single digits before doing this? Yeah, and I think that that's even more pronounced with the power play. Mm -hmm. It's not zero effort or anything like that. But the fact remains, I do not believe that power play minutes are nearly as tiring as five on five minutes. Because, especially if you're not the zone entry guy or one of the people entrusted with that, there's a lot of standing around and not having to move that much. You also and get also, hit far less. You got hit far less, absolutely. And it's more fun to play offense. I mean, anyone who plays hockey at any level knows that, but you are probably more energized. You're not having to do that kind of desperate blocking shots, start-stop, uh, rushing back on defense, trying to get back into position. On the power play, it's just less demanding, both psychologically and physically. And so I am less concerned with a rest argument at five on four. Mm -hmm. on, at five on five, I can see an argument for, okay, you do not want to overdo it because there is a price to be paid at some point. You can't play guys infinite minutes and not expect it to tell on them eventually. But yeah, with five on four, I think that that's even more of a pronounced question. Now that said, you can say like, hey, hey the power play is working. It's like, yeah, it's working when we do what we probably ought to do all the time, but okay. Yeah. Um, but where I was going with that is... Mm -hmm. these are issues that yeah you know you can fix them uh, and you can say yeah. we should have gotten better goaltending from freddie and maybe even from from uh jack campbell yesterday yeah i don't think that fixes th those those can improve on the margins i don't think that fixes the big issue with this team right now which is as we said that the Tavares line has not done enough to five on yeah right I, I do think that's what it that's what it comes down to so my, my point is you know mm -hmm. we, we delve into the minutiae about the team and the coaching decisions and all that stuff i don't think that is the biggest impact on the roster. I think that stuff impacts it at the margin. Um, but the biggest, I guess, uh, issue I have is that second line. Yeah, I think I would agree with you. And I do also want to talk about the goaltending briefly because I saw a lot of upset. There are a lot of people who have just had enough with Frederick Anderson mm -hmm. after a bad year last year, after not really starting the season well a couple of years in a row earlier in his, his career, and after getting out goaltended in the Columbus series. And they're saying, like, look, this guy is not very good. Possibly the book is out on him. Supposedly he gets beat in five-hole shots a lot more than other goalies. I never know how much to take away from that. But the fact is, even if you want to say a lot of the shots against in the first two games were pretty difficult... You expect more saves at some point. And certainly Freddy has had a long while now where we've expected more saves. Where you just need a bit more from him uh, in order for the team to really be competitive. But at the same time, I sort of... I guess the, the problems with the skaters concern me more because... I think there's something that we probably want to take more action on. Like, the reality is, I think Freddie Anderson is going to start on Monday. But he doesn't have a ton of margin left to keep playing badly. Jack Campbell will take his job if Campbell keeps outperforming him too much longer. And so I'm content to kind of leave it at that. Whereas, the most concerning things about these first three games, the way that they folded against the Senators... Um, the fact that the Tavares line is not working as well 5-on-5 five five as its points would appear. 
that stuff seems fundamental. And then the overall big picture thing is, it's like an election is, are you better off uh, than you were a year ago? Well, is this team better than it was a year ago? And we don't have any evidence yet. Yep, pretty much. Um, we should mention it because I'm sure this is going to become a thing. Is there a goaltending controversy? <laughs> we're on the precipice of one. I like I I think you have to acknowledge Freddie was not good. Yeah, I don't I mean, think the top, that the he was by any means the whole problem, but like, yeah, the top line numbers on on Campbell weren't amazing from a shots perspective either. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> Freddie's played two games. Uh, Campbell has played one. I'm not yeah really declaring anything based on that. Yeah, I think, like, look, the reality is is that Freddie did not play especially well in some key playoff games for these teams, mm -hmm. and that has made people very mad, and they would like to not experience that again, so they're keener to turf him. And, and like, that was always the, the argument that I would see on Twitter, where people are saying, hey, it's been two games, and then they say, no, it hasn't been two games, it's been several years of he made me mad. For good reasons, at times. He was, you know, he was not good enough last year. It's just a fact. And so... Yeah, like, I don't think that Freddie has a ton of extra rope left. I think that as of time of recording this podcast, he is the starting goaltender. But he's in the last year of his contract. Jack Campbell is a guy that management clearly seems to like. And in a season where the team is trying very hard to be sincerely competitive, if he has another week of bad games, or like two or three in a row... It would not totally stun me if Jack Campbell is the starting goalie in like two weeks. And I don't even think Jack Campbell is necessarily that great. I think I thought he was totally fine against Ottawa. Uh, that goal by uh, Stutzla, I don't know that you can expect anyone to stop like a, a perfect yeah, one-timer like that. Like that was to, very to hard be, to stop. Let's be, I mean, it didn't go in in a great spot. It went in under his arm, I think, right? Yeah, but I mean, with that lateral mobility and that, yeah, I don't know. but like, yeah. le let's be clear about this. Stutzler just one hopped a, a bouncing puck and just wired it. Like, it's if you're Campbell at that point, that's a surprising shot to even face. Yeah, yeah. That that was um, a bonkers goal. Um, Annie said it well in today's FTB. So that'd be the coolest goal of most guys' career, and that was his first goal. He's gonna be good. Yeah, Stutzla is going to be the real deal. Ottawa is not going to be a joke forever. And, you know, we certainly couldn't take them as a joke even in these two games. But, like, right now they're still a pretty bad team. But you can see the glimmers of something better coming down the pike. And, and Sens fans, I don't think any of them listen to this podcast. If they do, they would I mean, hate us. Pardon? They would hate us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, would, it would be a hate <laughs> listen for sure. But, like, Sens fans should enjoy this year. Because this is the fun year. You, there's no expectations. Yeah. You just enjoy whenever Stutzla scores or whenever Josh Norris scores or Drake Batherson does something cool. Or, um, that, and you don't have to care when, you know, Connor Brown ruins an offensive possession. Yeah, and you know what? I will even go so far as to defend the Sens fan base on something because after they beat the Leafs on Friday night, uh, they were in a celebratory mood. Their press was in a celebratory mood. Uh, Ian Mendez, who is, um, you know, a very well-respected reporter for The Athletic on the Sens beat, he kind of said, you know, this is a great night for you, Sens fans. This is enjoyable. And everyone was like, oh yeah, it's your Stanley Cup. It's like... Yeah, it is. 
They're in a rebuilding year, and their hated rival that has pretentious to contending, they just beat the pants off. I would be fucking amped in their position. Like, <laughs> of course they're excited about it. It's not like some burn on them to be like, oh, your team as a whole isn't very good. They know that. So, you know, I I didn't enjoy it. I was very annoyed at the least for, you know, putting me in that position. But, like, of course they're excited about it. As well they should be. Um, you know, there, there's no coming around on that where it's just like the Leafs just have to play better against a rebuilding team. So, yeah. Pretty much. Um, okay. Is there anything else you want to discuss? Nope. Great. So we'll get out of here. Um, thank you everyone for listening. You can find all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week.